saga? Saga? What's going on? Anything new? Okay, so for everybody who hasn't listened to the show in the past, Saga is actually my daughter, and she's three months old. I'm watching her today, but obviously she's not really my guest. I have been crazy at work, so I don't have—I didn't have the opportunity to get uh, Laura or Alexander or even Lauren on. So it's just going to be me this time. Um, you might hear Saga in the background from time to time, and you might hear the show pause while I go to take care of her. She is currently napping. And I'm keeping an eye on her, so we'll see what happens. So, uh, I guess I should get the the other stuff out of the way. You know, if you want to download the podcast, please visit my website. It's hugenhoff.org. That's H-U-G-I-N-H-O-F.org. And if you had any emails, please send them to hugenhoffpodcast at gmail.com. I love emails, and I love, uh, you know, seeing other people's views on things, so feel free to do that. And, uh... I did want to, I know I've been mentioning it a lot, I'm just really excited about this series. I want to mention the Northern Runes Radio homepage, which is just northernrunesradio.com, I believe. Uh, Wodenson has a great podcast about the runes, and if you'll remember, I did a podcast about the runes, it was a long time ago, it was one of my early episodes, and I did one hour on all of the runes. It was a good introduction to the runes, I think, but Wodenson on the NRR is giving a single podcast to every rune. So he's doing a podcast on every single rune. And I absolutely think the runes deserve that kind of attention um, because every one of them would actually take longer than an hour to explain. So giving them an hour is, is absolutely necessary. Plus he's including the, I focus on the elder food heart or, um, the Elder Futhark, yeah, that's it. But he's focusing on the the Elder Futhark, the Younger Futhark, and the Armana. So he's like drawing all of those systems together and saying how how um, they relate and what each rune means. So if you do use the Elder Futhark like I generally speaking do, this series is still extremely useful. So if you have not listened to that, please go and check it out because I think he's doing a really uh, great job on that. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, and if if you can't find his webpage, it is linked from my homepage as well. So it's pretty easy to find. Now today, since it's just me, um, I want to discuss something that I think is very important. I've mentioned it in podcasts a lot, but I don't think I've ever given an entire podcast just to it. And if I have it, can certainly uh, use another one. But what I want to go over today is meditation and magic a little bit, which I think is very important in Osotro. Now, before I jump into it, I want to put a little disclaimer out. If you don't meditate and you think magic is silly and doesn't exist, that's fine. It's not like you have to stop being Osotro because you don't believe in meditation and magic. You have every right not to, and you can still have a connection with the gods, even if you don't do meditation or any form of magic. Now, I think your connection to the gods will be stronger if you meditate, um, but it's not necessary. It's not like it's a requirement. I know plenty of Austro people who don't do any sort of meditation, 
and there are still things to learn. There are lessons in those stories. You know, it's like the Freyfaxi uh, episode we did last time. You don't need to have any sort of meditative practice to understand the moral questions and implications of that story. So you don't need meditation to get something useful out of Ossetru. You can still connect to your ancestors and you can still um, refine your own moral understanding of the world in a completely intellectual way. But I do think meditation adds a whole other side, which you're going to be missing if you don't do it. So I do strongly suggest it because, you know, um, yeah, there's useful stuff without it, but there's even more with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what I'm going to do, this is kind of going to be a hodgepodge thing, just uh, talking about some things I've been thinking about. But I think the first most important thing I want to go over is actually how to meditate. And a lot of people make it really hard. Now, I do think there is a good meditation series on the NRR, which I pretty much agree with and goes a little more depth than I probably will because he's probably a little more experienced than me. But, you know, maybe not everybody's listened to that and maybe you want another point of view. So... I'm going to start with how to meditate. It's actually really easy. Okay, find a position which is comfortable for you where preferably sitting up where your back is straight. I mean, actually, for me, yeah, I'm pretty big on that. You have to be sitting up and your back has to be straight. Uh, now, I personally prefer the half lotus, which is um, it's kind of like cross-legged. It's a little different. You can look up how to do it. Uh, the full lotus is good too, but you have to be a little more flexible for that. And I can do the full lotus, but it's not really comfortable. Um, so I prefer the half lotus and, you know, your legs are basically, your legs are crossed and your back is straight. Uh, you can even do one called the king's position where you like sit in a, a hard back chair and just sit with your back straight. I've known people to do that. That's not my favorite. I actually don't like it. I don't, I don't know. Here's the thing with the king position. If you're going to do that, you're not allowed to lean back on the back of the chair. That is against the rules. You, your back has to be straight and you have to support it. Because part of the meditative practice is to become aware of your body. And if you're in like this position where the chair is doing all the work or the bed or whatever else it is, is doing all the work, I think you sort of miss out on that. So you want to be in a semi-comfortable position, but one where you're actually supporting your own body. Okay, so super easy. Sit in that position for an hour. I mean, that's how you meditate. Done. And you will, in all likelihood, have some sort of experience just from that. Sit in a position where your back is straight for an hour and something will happen. I mean, I can't guarantee it will, but it did for me and it usually does. Now I'm going to go into a little more depth. What I actually think you should do is try that, you know, sit in a position with your back straight for an hour and then maybe come back to this and um, listen to the rest of it. But I'll, I'm going to go ahead and throw out some other, other things that I think are useful for meditation before getting into the next topic. One of the things that I think is really important or that I find very useful is um, breathing techniques. I prefer to breathe in for a count of four, then hold for a count of eight, then breathe out for a count of four, and, you know, continue that. Um, it's just sort of that rhythmic pattern is good to um, put you in that meditative state. And uh, 
is having control of your breathing is another thing where you're having control of an aspect of your body. And the whole point of this is, you know, it's the same for an hour. The breathing pattern is exactly same, the same for an hour. And what, what tends to happen is you go on autopilot, so to speak, and you open up, you know, other parts of you that aren't just concerned with the world around you. Uh, now, I will say, I said it was... I said sit for an hour like that's super easy. It's actually not. It's actually pretty difficult. It may take you a, a month, two months, three months to get there. Start by sitting for five minutes and then up it to 10, then 15, and keep going, you know, as as much as you can in, in a semi-comfortable manner until you get to an hour. And, and getting to the hour is probably going to be a little unpleasant the first time and a little painful because... We're not used to doing that. We're not used to shutting off the external world. And with the breathing, don't start with a 4-8-4. Start with a breathe for 4, hold for 4, breathe for 4, hold for 4. Then up that to breathe 4, hold 6. Then up that to breathe 4, hold 8. So you know you have to kind of build up to this. Um, and it's one of those things I can't really say, like, what's going to... Well, I should say, I don't want to say what's going to happen because... I, I don't want to pollute that experience for anything. And a lot of people actually have very similar things happen. And it's kind of cool, you know, do the meditative practice and then Google what's supposed to happen. And it's a neat experience when you see that um, what was supposed to happen is something that, that actually happened. Uh, and another thing that I think is useful to do when you're meditating, I think it sort of happens naturally. But... Um, we constantly talk to ourselves, you know, there's, and, and not like crazy person mumbling under your breath, talk to yourself, but you are experiencing the world and filtering everything through your own inner dialogue. I think Wodenson called it the inner chatterbox, which is a good way to put it, you know. Sometimes it's not even completely conscious, but it, it's always there, you get cut off in traffic and you don't just experience that you say oh that guy was a jerk or you're walking down the road and you see a house you don't just or, or a tree you don't just experience the tree you say oh look at that tree I wonder if it's an oak or if it's an elm and you know sometimes it's just straight up distractions you know you're you're walking home and and you're thinking oh what am I going to do for dinner uh what's on TV today, maybe I should play cards with my friends. You know, constantly talking. You're constantly talking. And that's fine, because we're rational, we're rational individuals who understand the world through language. Uh, you know, this idea that you can somehow just understand the world without words is is just silly in a lot of ways. I mean, if you see a chair, you don't just inherently understand that it is a device to be sat in you have to have words you have to say this is a chair a chair is something that i have been taught that you're supposed to sit in and you know then you sit in it everything that we see through our senses doesn't come straight from our senses right into our brain it goes through a filter and it goes through a filter of language saying this is important that's not important i mean you can look at the 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 studies and stuff on this, the vast majority of the world we actually never see. I mean, we physically see it, but we never process it in our brains because we say that's not important. And there, there's all these 
fun little studies where, you know, you have a, a symbol which looks sort of like an A and sort of like a 4, and in some contexts you take it as an A, in some contexts you take it as a 4, because you're filling in the rest with your brain. Or one of my favorites is there's a whole paragraph, and the first letter and the last letter of the word was correct, but the middle letters were all mixed up. People can still read that because we just naturally fill in the gaps to such an extent that the actual sensory information coming in is not the most important stuff. It's this construct we have in our brain, this linguistic construct to understand the world we have in our brain. And I think that's part of where the, the inner chatterbox comes in. It's, it's letting us put the world into terms that we understand. But part of meditation is actually to get away from that, to take the terms away, to truly experience a world with no terms. And it's such a bizarre experience because we never do it. When you, when you really are just looking at sensory input and you're not labeling it, it's like experiencing, experiencing a different world. And also when you're really trying to understand your body, that, that makes a huge, uh, a huge difference as well. So when you are meditating, you know, if you don't want to go with the super easy way, if you, you want something, something more to do, which is probably good, <clears throat> try not to use words. Try not to use language at all. And get this down first. Get this like really basic. Can I sit with my myself and can I sit with silence or at the very least no words for an hour? And you know, get that no mind state. And they call it no mind state and I've seen a lot of people get confused at that. They think that you're just like turning your brain off and just like dropping out of existence for an hour, which is absolutely not what it is. It's it's more like no language state or no ego state where you're turning off all that ex extra stuff. You're 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 turning off the inner chatterbox, I guess, is the best way to put it. So you can experience the world in a more in a more pure sense. I don't know if that's right the right word, but you can experience it in a in a sense without without language. So okay, so that's kind of the how to part of meditation. I want to kind of go to some of the reasons you might you really would probably want to meditate. And uh, the first big one for me, obviously, is communing with the gods. You have to remember that the gods use language in a way, sort of. I mean, you can look at a god's name and write it out in runes and then interpret the meanings of those runes, and then that will actually give you insights into the gods. I mean, the gods exist. This is hard to put into words. The gods exist, and the names, their their names are actually part of them. Their names are part of their existence. Their names have meanings. And it's actually a very interesting technique to write out the name of, of a god, and especially with Odin, because he has multiple names, and he also has multiple um, uh, perspectives, maybe, multiple ways to look at them, and the different the different names will connect to different ways to look at him. So if you did, like, if you interpreted Bulwark, you would have to look at the story that he used that name 
and you would see an aspect of Odin through interpreting that name in conjunction with that story and what he was doing there. Anyway, so what I'm trying to make clear is the gods are not incapable of using languages and also language isn't meaningless to the gods. The gods do have an interaction with language, but it's on like a really uh, deeper, more profound level in a lot of ways. So you can't talk to the gods like, hey, Odin, what's up? I mean, that is not the kind of language that you can use to talk to the gods. And that is the kind of language that your inner chatterbox uses and that you use on a regular basis. So what you're trying to do when you, when you turn off that inner chatterbox is to experience the world in a different way. And then when you're doing the meditation and you know you're sitting there for an hour, you're forgetting about your senses. You're forgetting about your body, so to speak. You've turned the physical world, quote unquote, off. So now you can see the spiritual world, which is always there. It's just quote-unquote, quieter than the physical world. And then you turn your language centers off, so to speak, your, like, common-sense language centers off, so that you can experience um, something that's beyond language. So you really need to do both of those to have, like, a strong communication with the gods. So the, the first step of meditation is basically turning off the way that we normally interact with the world so that we can interact with a different world. And the different world that I think is, generally speaking, the one that we're wanting to interact with is the world of the gods. So, through meditation, you can have a much stronger connection with the gods. And again, I will say this isn't, like, totally necessary. It's not like if you don't meditate, you can't be Asatru. I would say if you're a Gotha, you should probably try to do some meditation with the gods because you know that's what you're doing in a kindred is trying to draw the gods to people so my next topic will start shortly as soon as i make sure Saka's okay so i've been talking about communing with the gods and the next natural question is how do i know i've done that because you know things can come up with meditation but how do you know you're actually communing with the gods and not somebody else and part of the answer has to be uh, that you're personally going to feel it. You're just going to know when it's a true connection. But I want to go into it a little more than that. And the first thing we have to ask is, what are the gods exactly? What are they composed of, so to speak? And to an extent, they are mimetic entities. There is a part of them that is, you know, a set of ideas, preconceived notions, and everything else we have built up around them. Um, but then I think there's something behind that, the God itself that's behind that. But we sort of have to interact with the mimetic sense to, or the mimetic side to some extent. And I know that sounds kind of weird, so I'm going to try to make it a little more common sense. Let's say there's an individual, uh, a famous person or an actor or something that that you know from their movies and their interviews and everything else, and they have a certain personality. Well, it may or may not be that that personality is exactly what the person themselves actually is. Now, if you think about what am I going to do if I talk to Mrs. X, you would have to, you know, have this internal conversation with the preconceived notions you have of her. 
you wouldn't be dealing with the real person. The real person would be irrelevant at that point in time. You're only dealing with your preconceived notions. And you see this come up in other things with racism or prejudice of any sort. You think, oh, this race or this type of person is inherently bad. Generally, it's inherently bad. So you color everything they say with the brush of an evil person even though that has nothing to do with the person that's behind it. You have accepted these preconceived notions, and now you interact with them. Now, it's the same thing with the gods. There's preconceived notions we have about them. Now, sometimes preconceived notions are necessary. Let's look at a place where it's necessary. Let's say I'm at a bookstore and I see someone, and I don't know, I want to talk to them for whatever reason, and I go up and I'm like, Oh, hey, I noticed you're looking at these books. How are you today? Do you like this type of books? Now, there's a preconceived notion there, namely that that person is an English speaker. And I think, well, they're in America at a bookstore in English books section, so they must be an English speaker. That's a preconceived notion, and I need that to start a conversation. Could be false. It could be, you know, a French speaker who's buying a book in English for his English-speaking mother, but he doesn't actually speak English. I don't know. It's a preconceived notion, but I need to accept that preconceived notion to start a conversation with them. And I think it's very similar with the gods. You have to understand the mimetic side of them. You know, this collection of ideas that people have had about these gods for centuries to connect to the god that's behind that preconceived notion. So an example, Odin has a wide-brimmed hat and a beard. Does the god Odin, you know, the, the spiritual essence and energy that is Odin, actually wear a hat and have a beard? No, he does not, because he is not a person like we are. He is a god. He's uh, something entirely spiritual. He doesn't have a hat. Nonetheless, people have seen this energy force, this conscious energy force, because the gods are conscious and they have free will. But people have seen this conscious energy force for centuries in, in the form of having a hat and a long beard. And, you know, the reasons could be anything. The long beard implies wisdom, and he has a lot to do with wisdom. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The way that you would interact with Odin is to envision him with that wide-brimmed hat and long beard. That would be the most effective way to interact with him because as humans, we are very much part of the physical world. Our, our folk soul, part of that is something very physical. By our nature, we are physical. Physical and spiritual both, but by our nature, we are partially physical. So we cannot interact with something that's entirely spiritual without some physical anchors, and those anchors would be the beard or whatever, or the hat. Um, so maybe I've gone on a bit of a tangent there, but what can happen when you're trying to commune with a god, when you're trying to call a god, the interface, and I think a lot of these computer terms work really well, uh, but the interface to the god is that meme that set of ideas, the long beard and the hat, you know, all of that stuff. And you have to interface with that to commune with the actual God behind it. But what can happen 
is you can interface, you can connect to the interface, but not the God, you know, if you're not properly calling them or in the proper state of mind or whatever. And, you know, this is where, you know, maybe you hear somebody who summons Cthulhu and they actually have an experience. Well, they do actually have an experience because there is the mimetic idea of Cthulhu as well. That's a legitimate meme. But I don't think there's anything behind that. It's just a set of ideas because it was popular, popular, popularized in Lovecraft's fiction. So sure, there's a set of ideas, but there's not an actual thing behind it. And Cthulhu will never come up with new ideas or inspire you with new things that he's never said before because there's nothing behind the meme of Cthulhu. It's just a meme. Whereas Odin, being a uh, rational spiritual energy may actually come up with new ideas and he can actually change which is what we mean when we say our gods are living gods so it's really tricky sometimes to know have I come across just the meme or have I come across the actual god you know some of the things that you might want to ask yourself is is this thing that I think a god just telling me things I want to hear because generally speaking, if that's the case, you're just interacting with the meme that exists in you, and you're letting another part of you talk with you and say everything's okay or whatever. Or is it more like talking with a person where they don't agree with you on everything and they don't just tell you things that you already know? In addition to that, there really will be a much stronger connection. If you walk away, you know, if you try to commune with a god and you walk away with anything other than being utterly and completely blown out of the water, it probably wasn't actually a god that you were communing with. So I guess that's just a little something extra I want to say about how do you know when you actually come across a god? Because it's not easy. It's not easy to know because it's so easy to come across parts of yourself pretending to be the god, so to speak, so that your subconscious can communicate with you. And that in itself is useful in certain ways, but that's not actually communing with a god. So there's some things to look for, I guess, when you're trying to commune with the gods. Now, the other thing that you can use meditation with is to commune with the runes. Um, runes are, I mean, first of all, they're not just a divination system. Can't they be used for divination? Sure, why not? But that is not their first and foremost principle. Their first and foremost principle is, um, I guess, a way to understand the world and the deeper underlying aspects of the world. So <clears throat> there's something that can be worked with spiritually. You can come across them in meditation. You can work on them in meditation. Um you can understand them better in meditation. And there is a premium broadcast that the NRR does, which is a rune meditation, which is actually uh, pretty good, I think. It uses some interesting ideas where you've got, like, different frequencies creating different, like, um, states and stuff. Uh, I think it's actually pretty effective. I've come across that before. It's kind of the idea is... They have done studies, and when people are in meditation, they have different brainwave patterns. It's not the same brainwaves you have when you're asleep or when you're just in waking life. There are different brainwave patterns. 
and the idea of certain tones and certain um, certain frequencies of music, I guess, um, will use the the same frequencies that your brain waves would use. And then, since you want a state of balance, the body naturally wants a state of balance. It would get you into that meditative state faster. Um, you can look it up online. I mean, it's some interesting stuff, but I don't. I haven't done enough research to say much more than than what I just did on that. But it it is some cool stuff going on there. Anyway, back to the runes. If if you want to understand a rune better, I think meditation is really really good. You know, you you take this rune, whatever rune it is, and you actually, you know, meditate on it, and, and you kind of ask, okay, what other aspects am I missing? And I think that you'll get a lot of, a lot of other aspects doing stuff like that. So the other thing that you might want to do, and I guess this is both with uh, runes and meditation on the gods, is um, look at the lore and the rune poems, if you're doing the runes, I mean, those are our, like, starting places for them. Uh, the lore, you know, mostly coming from the Poetic Eddas and you know, also from the sagas and other places to a little bit. Uh, the Germania, Tacitus writes about it a little bit. Um, that kind of tells us what the gods are about, and that gives us a place to start. And then through your meditations, and, you know, that also goes into your own personal mimetic idea. And... Uh, when you're meditating, when you come across a god in meditation, or you come across a rune, in, or if you come across a rune in meditation, if they're totally off the wall different than what all the lore says and what all the rune poems say, you've connected with the wrong energy. Uh, maybe it's a part of you, maybe it's another energy entirely, but you've connected with the wrong energy, and then you can say, okay, look, I tried to summon Odin, and... He went on and on about how ignorance is bliss. Obviously, that's not Odin that you've come across. Or, I'm working on the rune Feo, and my meditation says the meaning is purifying fire. It's probably not correct either. I mean, if it's just something completely and utterly different from what the original source text is saying you're probably just off a little bit. Now, if you come across FAO and it starts uh, enhancing your understanding of how money works, for example, that might be legitimate. That's probably legitimate because it sort of goes along with the movable wealth idea, money, movable wealth, and you know maybe there's a real insight to be had there. But what meditation is going to do with the gods and the runes both is enhance your understanding because you are coming in contact with the spiritual fountainhead of the information you've come across in the lore of the rune poems. So it should always be something where it's enhancing your understanding, and if it's just totally off left, uh, you know, out of left field, then it's probably not the right energy that you're coming in, in, contra in, in connection with. And also remember, if you have any of these, like, personal gnosises, don't tell somebody else your personal gnosis and get offended if they don't believe you. I mean, it is just a personal experience, and personal experiences are powerful. They're the most powerful experiences of all. They're the only ones we can really trust in some senses, but you can't expect other people to trust it. And you might ask the question, well, then how do we really have a growing 
living religion if it can't change. Well, it can change, but it can't change from your personal experience. If you have a single personal experience that says something new about a god or says a new god exists or something, it's it's not going to change the entire religion. If lots and lots of people have personal gnosis, over time it may be included in the lore. Austera is a good example. You know, a lot of people, there's not really any lore about her, just some linguistic stuff by Bede and Grimm. But she has been accepted by many Austro people as a legitimate goddess because many people have had personal experiences with her. Okay, so let's keep on the topic of meditation, but move away from the religious for a second. I don't think everything you do has to be religious. Religion should be part of your life, absolutely. You shouldn't be doing things that contradict your religion in your life. You know, if you're also true, you can't go around breaking nose, but it's okay because it wasn't during blow. No, that's not how it works. But it's not all, you know, you don't have to be thinking about religion 24-7. So here's some other good things about meditation. The common one you always hear is it calms you down. Yeah, you know, you can do a 10-minute meditation and calm yourself down, and that's probably healthy. Lowers your blood pressure, I'm sure. But here's another really great one is creativity. All right, so let's say you're... I was making a video game just because I like video games and I wanted to make one. I'm not done with it. I'll get done with it eventually. Anyway, I was making the story, and I sort of had a story going and basically knew what I was doing with the story. And I was reviewing it. I was like, ah, it's not a bad story, but it's a little little predictable, a little dull. And, you know, I was doing one of my meditations, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to meditate on my game, you know, just because. And I was inspired to have a total cool twist at the end of the game And once I came up with that, I was like, I really like this. I really like this game now because there's this really cool twist at the end that I don't think people are going to expect. So it gave me a creative insight into something I was making. Now, did I call the gods when I did that? No, I didn't. I was just meditating um, on the game in my own personal self. So the creative inspiration could have been given by the gods, but the I, I think the idea was probably something that was in me already, and the meditation just brought it out. But, you know, one of the things with meditations, and this is even more true for magic, who cares why it works, as long as it does work. So if you're an artist, a musician, a writer, a video game maker, whatever, if you are an artist, I think meditation can be really useful to enhance creativity. So I want to encourage people to use meditation for non-religious means as well as religious means. Okay, so I think that's mostly everything I have for meditation. So I'm going to go on to uh, kind of my theory of magic, I suppose, because, you know, that's a very charged word. You know, you're like, magic and you I believe in magic and everybody's like oh so you're a crazy person and I came from a very different background than most Austro people before Austro I was atheist and you know the only magic I believed in was um, what my character in Skyrim could do even though back then I wasn't playing Skyrim uh, I don't even know what game it'd be in but you know I didn't believe in it I was like oh you know it's it's a great um, 
system for video games. And that's about as far as I went. I, I didn't think it was anything real. Over time, I've come to believe that it probably does actually work. And, of course, there's different aspects of it. You know, when you summon a god, or I, I guess summon would be the right word, uh, call a god maybe, I feel like someone has this idea that you command them to come. And that's not what you're doing at a a bloat or even in personal meditation. You are not commanding Odin to show up before you. And if you have that attitude, it's either going to not go well or he's just not going to show up at all. Because it's not, it's not our right. We don't have the right to force other entities to show up before us. We are asking the gods to come. We ask the gods to come before us. And that's the type of magic. There's also the type of magic where you want an actual thing to happen. You know, maybe a more pragmatic form of magic. You want to get a raise at work, whatever it is. You know, getting a raise at work is a fine thing to do. But I generally use it for, you know, some sort of self-improvement. I have this thing about me I don't like. And I want to change it. I, I think that magic can also really work well for that. So I need to get into my theory of magic. And it's got a couple different um, variations. It works on a couple different levels, I guess I should say. All right, so first of all, what is magic? You know, for me, and everyone has a different view. I know this for sure. But for me, it, it is um, language to a huge extent. You know... You cat people say you cast a spell. Well, what spell? It's spelling words with letters. There's a linguistic connection right there. Or you know, you read grimoires. What what are grimoires? I mean, that's just kind of a fancy way of saying grammar. And uh, Alan Moore actually does a lot of interesting talks on magic. But as I said earlier, you know, we live in this world where every sensory experience we have is filtered through our lens of language. So we, theoretically, we exist in a physical world that, you know, we can reach out and, and touch. But we never experience that physical world. What we experience is the filtered version of that experience, of that physical world, which has gone through our linguistic filters. So if magic is manipulating language and we really think about how we exist, we don't interact with objects. We interact with words and language, which is connected to objects. I don't, you know, I might sit on a chair, but the only reason I choose to sit on the chair is because I have interpreted the sensory information of this big blob of swirling atoms as a chair, and I put the, the label chair on it. So if magic is changing language, what I could do if I wanted to not sit in chairs for some reason is what I, what I have to do to accomplish not sitting in chairs is not destroy all chairs. I mean, that would be next to impossible. What I could do instead is change my definition of chair to, or change, yeah, change my definition of chair from a thing to be sat in to um, a thing to put potatoes on. And it's just totally random, but why not? And if I could truly, you know, 
convince myself that chairs are things to put potatoes on, I would change my actions and I would not sit in chairs anymore. And I think to a large extent that is part of how magic works. You know, as we grow up, there are all these, you know, it starts with your parents and then it goes to school and then uh, your friends maybe and the books you read. There are all these people trying to program our behavior. And they're saying, this is, this is what chairs do. This is how you live your life. This is how you do religion. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. They're constantly through words saying, this is the way that you can think. But what you can do in meditation, as we talked about earlier, is turn off the inner chatterbox and experience the world through non-linguistic manners. And we are programmed through language. And I, this is going to be really hard to explain. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson wrote a book about it called Prometheus Rising, Prometheus Rising, which I would suggest. But basically what you're trying to do is turn off the language and then in the meditative state move beyond the language center and then actually reprogram the linguistic centers of your mind so you can redefine definitions of words and then you can redefine whatever you want you could make chairs things to put potatoes on you could make um you could make the appropriate response to a being cut off in traffic. You could change that from anger to acceptance. You know, whatever you're trying to do, you could change your behavioral reactions to things as well because those are ultimately put in through language. You know, uh, language and, you know, some actions. But if if you grow up with the reaction to you doing something bad, your parents hitting you, you're going to say when something bad is done, the proper reaction is to react in a violent way. But you can actually reprogram that just like you can reprogram everything else. And I think that's the useful aspects of magic that you can do. And you know you can do this with sigils. If you want to look into sigils, I think that'd be a cool idea. Again, Alan Moore talks about those, and Grant Morrison as well. You can probably find those on the internet. Um, those are just two of my favorite guys who talk about it. Lots of people talk about it. But basically, you take a sentence, again, language, and you um, rearrange that into uh, an aesthetic. Well, you actually take out the vowels first, and then you rearrange the non-repeating letters into an aesthetically pleasing symbol which you then meditate on and the idea is even though it looks completely different you'll remember remember it first because it looks cool instead of just like a bunch of dumb letters so you'll remember it but also it will still have the meaning of the letters that it was composed of because you know what those letters were and it is inherently trapped in the sigil and then subconsciously on some level those letters will actually take some sort of an some sort of an effect on your life so okay that's just some of the practical techniques of how to do it but, but you're probably asking well how does it how does it work especially if it's something like I want to raise at work instead of I want to change my action to somebody else well a huge part of how it works is the placebo effect and placebo gets a bad name they're like oh 
placebo, that means it didn't work. Yes, it did. If, if, if you're depressed and someone gives you placebo, they give you a sugar pill, you take it and then you're not depressed anymore, it worked. It was an effective treatment. Did it have chemicals that changed your brain chemistry and made you not be depressed? No, it didn't, but it still worked. The placebo effect is an actual effect, and there's just like this idea that, oh, placebo means it doesn't work. No, if your, if your reaction, if, if your actions change, it worked. So I think a huge part of it is the placebo effect. You find ways to convince yourself to act in a way that you otherwise want it. So, you know, if you go to the trouble of making the ceremony and get the symbols and everything else right, you make the bind runes properly, and you you cast, you know, you do a meditation on getting a raise, what's probably actually happening in the real world is you, on some level, even if you're a skeptic, on some level you actually want it to work. So you subconsciously try to make it work. And what you might do is you work harder at work. You know, you're not actively being lazy at work right now, but maybe you actively work harder at, or you subconsciously work harder at work. So, you know, the boss happens to be walking down the aisle one day and sees you working hard, whereas if you hadn't hadn't done this uh, bind rune or sigil or however you do it, you would have subconsciously just been goofing off because you're like, oh, I don't get paid enough. But because you've done this spell, you're working harder. The guy, your boss, walks past you. And he's like, "Ah, oh, that guy's really been working hard lately." He pulls up your production reports. He's like, "Oh, you know what? This guy actually produces um, twenty-five percent above everybody else." And then he says, "Well, you know what? Maybe I should uh, give him a promotion." And then you get a promotion. So, did anything mystical happen there? No, it didn't. Not really you've just subconsciously decided to work harder than you normally did, and working hard usually gives you a raise. Or maybe the same thing subconsciously. You know, maybe you always fill out for new jobs, but because you've done this, you fill out for more new jobs. Or you spend more time making your resume that you're filling out, um, filling out jobs with. So whatever, there can be totally non-mystical things happening, and it can still be extremely effective, which is why I think even total hardcore atheists are totally fine practicing magic, because you don't have to believe in anything mystical for it to work. You just have to say, <clears throat> I'm making a placebo. I've done some research. I see the placebo effects powerful. I'm making a placebo for myself, convincing myself it's real, so it'll work, and there it works. Now, do I think there's something more mystical to it? Yeah, personally I do, but that's something that I wouldn't be able to really prove. You know, I think that we have a certain amount of power on the on the earth, and I think the gods also have a certain amount of power on the earth. Not to just like shoot fireballs out of your hands. I don't think I don't think that's possible, but to subtly influence the likelihood of certain things to happen. You know, most things in this world are random. You know, there's a chance, you know, like the lottery, there's a chance you'll win and there's a chance you'll lose. Even when you get down into subatomic uh, um, quantum mechanics and stuff like that, everything starts happening on a more and more probabilistic level. 
And what I think we might have the ability to do is to just, you know, change change the probability of things a little bit. Instead of there being a 50-50 chance, there's a 55-45 chance in your favor. I could be totally wrong. I can't prove that, so I'm not going to expect you to believe it, and there's no reason that you should. I just personally believe it. But I think even without that, you can see why maybe um, magic would actually work on on a purely physical, totally not mystical at all level. And of course, you could say the same thing with um, doing meditation if you wanted to do a bloat. If you're the type that says, well, the gods don't exist, they're just part of me. Okay, I think the gods exist, but again, you don't have to. But still, if I do the meditations and I reinforce my belief that the gods exist and are going to show up and everything else, and I have that special feeling, which is very hard to describe, but you you feel it when the gods come down. And even if that feeling isn't anything important, it inspires me to um, create an atmosphere that's more conducive for other people to be inspired, and it inspires me to make a better um, bloats. So when I say something in the open round, it's more likely to be be a concept that's actually important that could help the other people. So even if you say the gods don't exist, you can still admit, well, no, the gods don't exist. But when Byron feels like he has communed with the gods, his posts, his bloats are more um, effective. He just, for whatever reason, placebo effect, I guess, comes up with these ideas that are actually interesting, that actually make me think. So there's still advantages even to communing with the gods and drawing the gods down through a meditative or magical act, even if you don't believe that they're physically real and even if you don't believe in magic at all. So I just think it's important to remember you don't necessarily have to believe in something mystical to believe in magic. Okay, I'm I'm almost done. I just have a couple things I want to mention. Uh, stuff that's come up, I suppose. So when you when you practice magic and you're trying to um, use it to understand things, uh, there's something called a formula, and that's what I was talking about earlier, where I said if you write like Odin's name out in runes, you know, each of those runes have a meaning, right? Each of those runes have a meaning. So you take the meanings, and it says something about Odin. Now, that can be useful, and I think that makes sense, that our ancestors would make the name meaningful, or maybe Odin himself would just tell uh, the people what his name was, and then that would, by its definition, be a powerful name. So you can understand the god better by you know, interpreting his names through the runes. So the other question is, well, what about like these other things? What if you interpret his name through the tarot cards or the Hebrew letters or something like that? And that brings up a real tricky question because your first reaction would be, oh, well, those are Hebrew systems, so they're just simply not going to work. So whatever, don't even try. Well, I've tried it, and they actually do work. 
And why that is, I don't know, coincidence, or is it because there is some, you know, lots of people have different religions in the world, and being a folkish person, I think most religions are valid. Also true is just valid for me, because it is my ancestral pathway. I don't think that magic is necessarily only valid for certain people. Magic is just um, the structure of the universe. And lots of people approach it in a different way. Um, but it is kind of the same for everybody. So magic and religion are not necessarily the same thing. And, and you can see that because when you talk about the gods, well, you know, the gods are, like, in my opinion, rational entities who kind of started us on the path that we're on today. Well, if there's rational entities, it would make sense that there'd be more than, like, you know, however many gods there are. There's actually a lot of gods, but let's just say 24, even though there's more than that. I'm just going to say 24. There's going to be more than 24 rational entities. Just like here on Earth, it's not like there's only 10 people. There's a whole bunch of them because they're individuals. But there is only one energy. And I'm just going to talk about, like, energy that goes through copper pipe copper wire energy it's not like there's okay actually technically there are different kinds of energy but let's just keep it simple and say the energy i use the same energy in my house that my neighbor uses in their house even though we have different mothers and fathers and brothers and sons and daughters the energy we use is the same so it's the same way i think in the spiritual world the magic is like the energy that powers the houses so to speak but then the gods themselves are actually individuals so so now we let's just let's just assume that it's possible i can use like uh, tarot cards which are based on a bunch of stuff mostly hebrew and egyptian though so it doesn't really have anything to do with our lore i can use it to have a greater understanding of the gods well some people would say well, no you can't do that because that's like foreign magic and it's it's not folkish to do that because our gods wouldn't want you to use somebody else's system to understand them and i think that's a really good question is that the case i would personally say no and there's a couple reasons first of all First of all, I would say that you could go too far if you, like, summon deities from other pantheons to ask them about our gods. I think that would be going too far. I don't think you should ever actually summon gods other than your own. You know, if you're going to be Ostro, you cannot summon Zeus because you think he might teach you something useful or Hermes. But I think that you can use other systems because they are just different interpretations of the universal magical energy. And if it helps you understand things more, then you should use it. Whatever tool you have to understand the universe better, I think, should be used. And I think we kind of see this with Odin. The giants are the enemies of, of us people and the gods both. Yet Odin still goes over there. And a lot of time it's like to kill a giant or something like that, which it's like, okay, well, he's just destroying his enemies because that's necessary. But he also travels to Jotunheim just to observe it and to see what's over there and to learn and everything else. So if Odin can learn from the giants, you know, he never sides with the giants, but he learns from the giants. If Odin can learn from the giants and 
and go through the nine worlds, I think that we can learn from other magical systems, if that's the tarot cards or whatever. I think we should put most of our energy into the runes because that's the most folkishly appropriate system for us. But I think we can certainly expand our knowledge of whatever we're looking at through other magical systems. Um, but then, then, and, and this is the last thing I wanted to, to say, we have to remember our systems are not other systems necessarily. And especially when you get into the mythologies, because I've come across a lot of people who try to say Yggdrasil, our world tree, is the same thing as the tree of life. The like originally Kabbalistic, but then most people use like the Golden Dawn version now. And they say the Golden Dawn version of the tree of life is the same thing as Yggdrasil. And that's actually an interesting concept and one I think certainly bears being looked into just because it could be interesting. But I don't think the comparison actually holds. I think our world tree is um, informative of how the world is actually created. You know, there are like these nine different realms that you can actually travel to. And that's another thing you can do in meditation, travel to these different realms, of course. If you're maybe like Alpine or something to start with, you don't you don't want to go to like Jotunheim on your first travel. That'd probably be a bad idea. But it it's like an actual map to actual places. And when you look at the like Golden Dawn Tree of Life, I think it's a representation of an individual person. It's a representation of the world as a whole as well, because you know like the the macrocosm and the microcosm are, are the same, just on different levels. But um, I think that Golden Dawn Tree of Life is is a map of an individual. It's not like an actual map of an actual place. So when you're looking at other magical systems, if you decide to do that, I think it's important to remember that, yeah, they're kind of interpreting the same magic that we use in a different way, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to say, oh, this equals this and that equals that, because there's a huge tendency to do that, to say, okay, I read tarot cards and runes, so what rune equals the fool in the tarot cards? And um, what tarot card is Gabo? There's not these one-to-one -one connections with different magical systems. It, you know, it's not like in a foreign language where Oh, well, not even a foreign language. It's not like some cipher where K equals L and M equals Q, and you just do like a plug plug in the plug in the letters, and then you're done. It, it doesn't work like that. They are actually unique systems. So just trying to simplify everything to like one master key is not not necessarily going to work, and not something you should probably do. And again, with the magical systems, if you if you believe in the first the first definition of magic of it's something that's just purely practical it works on placebo effect and um, simply planting ideas into your brain so they come out later that's fine and you can see it would work just as well with tarot cards as it would with runes or something something along those lines. So, I mean, even if you're not the mystical type, you can still see how this is useful. And, you know, one interesting theory 
that I heard about how the, the way magic works is like, uh, let's just take the runes. Now, I don't actually believe this, but let's just take the runes. Let's say the runes are completely and utterly random. They don't have any real meaning. They're just a bunch of random meanings thrown together. But, but when you do the formula for Odin, they've just got these like kind of vague random meaning, meanings and you put them out there and, and because they're a chaotic pattern and your brain wants the world to be ordered, you find a way to order them and you find a way to order them that says out loud what you are subconscious, what you subconsciously already know about Odin. So it's a way to really understand what you're thinking about Odin through using these random, these random meanings, which, you know, if that's the case, again, it's still effective. And, you know, that's, that's kind of cool. I don't think it is the case. I think the meaning of the runes are the meanings of meaning of the runes. And I really think if you look at the rune, the rune row, especially in order, it tells such an obvious story that you couldn't say, oh, they're just completely random meanings. But, you know, I'm throwing out other ideas, so I thought I'd throw that one out as well. Okay, well, I'm at an hour, so I'm going to stop. Um, I covered a lot today. It is a little bit all over the place. My final thought is going to be this, though. When you get into religion and magic, a lot of it is very difficult to talk about because so much of it comes down to I experienced this and if the other person hasn't experienced it, it's impossible to talk with them about it. You can do the best you can. You know, you can try to put experiences into words, but it always leaves you disappointed once you've done it. You're like, okay, I thought I had it right, but, you know, I don't. This sort of explains it, but not really. So, you know, uh, really, if I had the choice between you listening to this podcast or you sitting down and meditating for an hour, sitting down and meditating for an hour would be much more informative than this podcast could ever be, even if I carried it on for two hours. So I'd really suggest if you're interested in any of this stuff that I talk about, just Find a comfortable position where your back is straight and sit there for an hour. And I mean, that is really what you need to do. And then once you have these experiences, some of the stuff I say might make more sense. It might make less sense. But at the very least, you would understand yourself and the universe more completely than you used to. So that's it for this month. Thank you everybody for listening. If you had any email, any questions, please feel free to email me at youcanallpodcast at gmail.com and feel free to visit the website at www.youcanall.org. Thank you for listening. Rahel.